has identified the cause of the mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan city. And it's from the same family that caused the deadly SARS epidemic 17 years ago. It's a new type of coronavirus. South Korea has confirmed the first local case of the mysterious coronavirus from China. Another day, another country. This time, Taiwan announces its first case of the deadly coronavirus. In other news in the region, Japan has confirmed its first case of the Wuhan virus. And in Hong Kong, health authorities confirm. Singapore has confirmed. Malaysia has reported its first virus has been reported here in the U.S. France's health minister has confirmed. That and Vietnam has become the first case in Australia. German health authorities are busy. A confirmed case in Finland. Confirmed case arrived in the Philippines from India's first case of coronavirus. Of COVID-19 were detected in Mongolian students. Officials in Italy now say the time Russia has reported. From a strange pneumonia-like illness contracted in a food market in central China, to a global pandemic with over 16 million cases and at least 650,000 deaths at the time of recording in late July. Coronavirus enveloped the world in less than three months. To slow the spread and prevent deaths, governments asked their citizens to stay at home if possible and for most businesses to close their doors. Where shutdowns were followed, it worked. The spread of coronavirus did slow down. But what did that mean for the economy? Well, as the most apt metaphor puts it, it placed it in a medically-induced coma. Some vital workers, like those in the health and food services industry, bravely continued to work. Schools were shuttered, and where possible, work was shifted to the home. But for tens of millions of Americans, it meant losing their jobs completely. To help the economy survive through the coma, central banks around the globe have unleashed their lender of last resort tools to a degree never before seen in the history of the modern world. When I envisioned and outlined this series a few years ago, the plan was to end episode 6 with something like, central banks learned a lot in their role as lender of last resort during the global financial crisis of 2007 through 9. Let's hope they don't have to do it again for many decades to come. Now, although that was not what happened, the thrust of the conclusion that central banks had learned valuable lessons and would put them to work in the next crisis did prove true. Coordinated actions and programs that had taken weeks and months to develop on the fly during the global financial crisis were rolled out within days once the seriousness of the coronavirus became clear. But central banks, often in coordination with their treasuries and finance ministries, did not stop there. They pushed the boundaries of the lender of last resort once again. I am Alexander Badgett, and this is the Bankster Podcast Season 3, Last Resort, presented by Centralverse.org. This is Episode 7, Coronavirus, the final chapter of this season. Today's episode is broken into three parts. Part one, what you need to know about developments in the lender of last resort between the global financial crisis and the coronavirus. Part two, the deployment of the emergency programs originally developed in the global financial crisis. And finally, part three, how central banks have, in the last few months, significantly expanded who they'll open their last resort doors to. So, part one. Intercrisis Lender of Last Resort Developments. Thank you. Everybody, please have a seat. Have a seat.
After the worst of the global financial crisis and ensuing Great Recession had ended, political leadership in the United States began drafting legislation to change the rules on Wall Street. Now, while a number of factors led to such a severe recession, the primary cause was a breakdown in our financial system. This is, of course, President Barack Obama speaking at the signing ceremony of the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, commonly known after its congressional sponsors. For the last year, Chairman Barney Frank and Chris Dodd have worked day and night. The Dodd-Frank Act runs 849 pages and is full of dozens of major reforms and hundreds of minor ones. Here are six pieces of the law that we won't go into detail about, but are worth mentioning so you can get a feel for the massive scope of this legislation. First, the creation of an interagency body called the FSOC that brings together the heads of all of the major financial agencies, like the Fed, the FDIC, and the Treasury, to coordinate on monitoring risk in the financial system. Second, a special office to support the FSOC in their financial stability research. Third, the abolishment of the Office of Thrift Supervision, which was the agency that was supposed to be supervising big non-banks like AIG. Fourth, Dodd-Frank gave the Fed authority to regulate certain non-banks. Fifth, it created a new way for major banks and financial institutions to go bankrupt in a more systematic and careful way, as opposed to going through the destructive bankruptcy courts like Lehman Brothers did. And then finally, sixth, it created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. For this series, the two most relevant changes that Dodd-Frank made to the Fed's role as lender of last resort are as follows. One, it required that all future emergency last resort loans be made for the purpose of providing liquidity to the financial system and not to aid a single failing financial company. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the specialized last resort rescues of Bear Stearns' takeover by J.P. Morgan Chase or the rescue of AIG would no longer be allowed. Now, the second relevant change turned something that had been done in the global financial crisis response unofficially into something legally required and official. It required the Fed to get formal approval from the Secretary of the Treasury before establishing any emergency last resort facilities. So no more one-off rescues and increased formal coordination with the Treasury Department. In early March, the Federal Reserve made its first coronavirus interest rate cut. Federal Reserve cutting interest rates by 50 basis points, making a surprise announcement of a 50 basis point rate cut. The Federal Reserve saying the coronavirus poses an evolving risk to economic activity. Most of the questions I get when big stuff with the Fed happens are in the vein of, should I refinance my mortgage or reallocate my 401k? But one old friend reached out and asked what I thought the Fed would do next. I didn't bore this dear friend of mine with too many details, but the point I made was that one of the most critical lessons central banks learned in the last crisis was the importance of reacting early and going all in. As Ben Bernanke, chair of the Federal Reserve through the Great Recession, acknowledged on the 10th anniversary of the crisis, None of us anticipated the full ramifications and extent of the crisis, and so in that respect we were late. Uh, we then responded very aggressively. I Europe's crisis of the early and mid-2010s would possibly add a third tenet to emphasize that the monetary and fiscal support remain in place until policymakers are sure the economy has recovered. 
So if you had to summarize the lessons central banks had internalized in the decade leading up to the coronavirus pandemic, you might phrase it this way. The last resort policies should be introduced early, be aggressive in scope, and sustained in duration. I apologize if this feels like a very large preamble to the Fed's actual lender of last resort activities during the coronavirus pandemic. Just one more item worth noting before we dive into the specifics. I'll let Jay Powell, the current Fed chair, make this point. I would stress that these are lending powers, not spending powers. The Fed is not authorized to grant money to particular beneficiaries. The Fed can only make secured loans to solvent entities with the expectation that the loans will be fully repaid. Part 2, the deployment of the emergency programs originally developed in the global financial crisis. The coronavirus itself is still rampaging its way through many communities in the U.S. and around the world. The economic damage will be felt for years to come. That said, in most crises, the lender of last resort emergency actions by central banks are taken in the early days. So although the crisis hasn't ended, we can do a very solid overview of the Fed's emergency actions. The only caveat being that if the economy stays depressed for longer than currently predicted, banks will begin to suffer more than they currently have, and the Fed may need to step in again to sure up the financial system. In a conference call, press conference, less than two weeks after the initial interest rate cut, the Fed did it again. Today, we reduced the target range for our policy interest rate by one percentage point, bringing it close to zero, and said that we expect to maintain the rate at this level until we're confident that the economy has weathered recent events and is on track to achieve our maximum employment and price stability goals. With policy-level interest rates dropped to zero and early actions in government debt and mortgage market securities taken, the Fed began setting up the tried-and-true facilities from the global financial crisis. On Tuesday, March 17th, the Fed restarted two such programs. To put the speed in context, it was just two days earlier on Sunday afternoon when the Fed lowered the policy interest rate to zero and held that conference call press release. Here is a CNBC reporter discussing the first program. Carl, thanks very much. The Federal Reserve in the first use of its Emergency Powers Act uh, during this coronavirus crisis, launching the commercial paper funding facility, uh, very much modeled on what it did during the financial crisis. This program introduced support to the market for short-term business debt. The second program was one meant to assist primary dealers, which are the big financial institutions that work in the critical government debt and market clearing businesses. On Wednesday, March 18th, the Fed introduced a program to support the money markets. On Monday, March 23rd, it introduced yet another program, this one to support the issuance of asset-backed securities backed by debt like student loans, auto loans, among others. So not only were these programs officially authorized by the Secretary of the Treasury, but the Treasury itself contributed a portion of the money to fund three of the four of these global financial crisis era programs. The Fed didn't reinstate all of the programs from the last crisis, however. Most notably, the Fed hasn't launched the term auction facility, which, if you remember, was the super important last resort program that was effectively a new and improved discount window that auctioned the emergency loans in batches with longer maturities. This move, or better said, lack of a move to reestablish the term auction facility, 
is the simplest example of how the economic crisis caused by the coronavirus is different from the Great Recession, as caused by the global financial crisis. The banking system, as a whole, was healthy and in a solid position going into this crisis. To the contrary, the financial system itself was a big reason the economy collapsed at all in 2008. Like I mentioned earlier, if the coronavirus situation doesn't improve, businesses remain closed, and the economy in general doesn't improve by the late fall or early winter, we may see more stress in the financial system and a need reemerge for a program like the term auction facility. But for now, banks haven't needed it. Honestly, this crisis hasn't really been about the banks. Up to now in this podcast series, the recipients of last resort loans have been almost exclusively players in the financial system. Not in this crisis, which leads us to part three, how central banks have in the last few months significantly expanded who they'll open their last resort doors to. major concern. Look, we know that small and medium-sized businesses already operate with very thin margins. They don't have the luxury of going to capital markets to build up buffers to, to weather these sorts of shocks. No, state and local governments are, are facing uh, unprecedented uh, budget challenges. Launching the target. Those companies that are too big to have access the Paycheck Protection Program that Congress appropriated through the CARES Act and are also too small, though, to access capital markets. Shall we? Today marks the start of the much-anticipated move from the Fed. The central bank will start buying corporate debt ETFs. It's a key part of its emergency coronavirus lending program. The Federal Reserve has announced a new mechanism that'll enable the central banks of other countries to swap their U.S. government bonds for dollars. This is known as the FEMA repo facility. In a first for a sitting Fed chair, Jay Powell took a live interview on NBC's Today Show. Here's how he described one element of the Fed's last resort authorities. When it comes to this lending, we're not going to run out of ammunition. That doesn't happen. Fed lending has now been extended to state and local governments, to small and medium-sized businesses, to large companies in new ways, and ultimately to the rest of the world. We'll take these one by one. States, counties, and cities have seen their actual and expected revenues dry up. As income taxes were delayed and collection of sales tax were dramatically decreased, with most businesses closed. The city of Cincinnati is facing major budget cuts and temporary layoffs in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of the losses that we're experiencing in Denver are more significant than what we're seeing nationally. So it presents us with a particular challenge. The state held a conference to hear from experts estimating tax revenue and they painted an ugly picture. The budget contains historic cuts that impact every city service, libraries, parks and recreation, tree trimming, road maintenance, arts and culture funding, even police. And given the uncertainty surrounding the pandemic's lasting economic impacts, things could get even worse. The Federal Reserve made two major moves to support states and municipalities. Given the restraints we talked about earlier, the best the Fed can do is help these governments borrow money at a cheaper interest rates than they would have otherwise. This is an important caveat because many local laws require their local or state governments to operate on a balanced budget. Grants from the federal government are going to be even more important than the actions the Fed has taken. That said, it was a huge step for the Fed to extend last resort emergency lending to governments below the federal level. The first move came on March 23rd and allowed banks using the Fed's pre-existing money market mutual fund liquidity facility 
and commercial paper funding facility to post short-term municipal debt as collateral. This incentivized banks to buy state and local debt because they knew they could effectively exchange it for cash at the Fed. The announcement of this program alone brought interest rates offered to these smaller governments down significantly. However, rates were still above pre-crisis levels, and the Fed decided to take a more direct step to support the market for state and municipal debt. On April 9th, the Fed announced a new 13-3 emergency facility that would buy debts directly from the locality. Here is CNBC Fed reporter Steve Weissman again. It will be offering, never done this before, up to $500 billion in loans to states and municipalities. That's right. The Federal Federal Reserve will be financing municipal bonds or municipal notes. The program was structured similarly to the ones we've discussed before. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York created a new company, an SPV, that the Fed and Treasury together would lend to. The Treasury put in $35 billion and the Fed put in the rest. The New York Fed then uses the SPV to buy the state and municipal debt directly. When the states, counties, and cities pay off the debt, the Fed and the Treasury can shut down the company and take the profits or losses. A huge debate has swirled around the nature and potential for losses within these Fed programs. We won't get into the specifics, but I bring it up to take a moment to remind everyone that there's nothing set in stone about the lender of last resort boundaries, and they're actively being debated by academics, policymakers, and congresspeople alike. So, next up, support for small businesses. To set the stage, here's Harvard professor Karen Mills, former head of the Small Business Administration in the Obama administration, on a recent Zoom presentation. A small business is a critical part of the U.S. economy. And in fact, at this moment, I think people are realizing how important it is. Half the people who work in this country own or work for a small business. So that's half the jobs. There's 30 million small businesses. President Obama, speaking about the Great Recession, summed up how it works in a recession. So the bottom line is, when our small businesses don't do well, America doesn't do well. So we all have a stake in helping our small businesses grow and succeed. Given the catastrophically rapid economic collapse caused by the coronavirus pandemic, where the Fed had previously not lent quite so directly into the real economy, they now began to do just that. They did so broadly under two programs, the Paycheck Protection Program Lending Facility for small businesses and the Main Street Lending Program for mostly for the medium-sized businesses. The Main Street program has been incredibly challenging for the Fed. It took months to get off the ground and has had relatively small uptake. However, there was a significant improvement in the medium-sized business debt market based on the Fed's announcement alone, which made it partly a victim of its own success. The program allows banks to make loans to medium-sized businesses with the Fed taking 95% of the risk of the loan and the bank retaining 5%. You can think of both of these programs for small and medium-sized businesses as working by taking risk of lending to businesses out of the banking system and onto the books of the Fed itself. The Paycheck Protection Program Lending Facility is actually just the cherry on top of the already very generous and massive Paycheck Protection Program. Also the Paycheck Protection Program, it helps small businesses with fewer than 500 employees, eligible nonprofits, veteran organizations, and tribal businesses. Those eligible can qualify for loans up to $10 million. And if you keep your workforce or restore it to what it was before February 15th, your loan can be forgiven. 
The Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, was included in the giant $2.2 trillion stimulus package that the U.S. Congress passed in late March. The government has allocated $659 billion for the PPP, and by mid-July had extended these forgivable loans to 4.9 million small businesses. But the federal government doesn't have the capacity nor the infrastructure to make all of these loans themselves. So, by necessity, the program is structured such that the government guarantees the loans, but the loans are actually made by commercial banks and some fintechs like PayPal. The banks have many incentives to participate in the PPP. First off, they build more relationships with small business customers. Second, they take a fee for originating the loans. Third, if the small business ends up going out of business and can't pay back the portion of the loan that wasn't forgiven, well, the government will give the bank the money back. But if you've learned anything in this entire series on last resort lending, it may be that banks get really conservative during moments of panic. They hold tight to their money and make it really hard to get a loan. So the Federal Reserve stepped in with one additional incentive to ensure that banks had absolutely no excuse for not making these forgivable loans to small businesses. The Fed's program is called the PPP Lending Facility. Let's think of it this way. When the commercial bank makes the loan to the small business, the small business gets cash, and the commercial bank basically gets an IOU from the small business. Then, if the small business uses the cash to pay their employees, then after a few weeks, the government gives the commercial bank cash to cover most of the IOU, and the business gives the bank the rest of the cash. At this point, the IOU would be gone. But what that system means is that the bank has to hold on to the IOU. With normal IOUs from loans like mortgages, credit card debt, or auto loans, banks can take the IOUs and sell them to other banks or bundle them together and sell pieces off to institutional investors like pension funds. But this new PPP IOU, uh, banks wouldn't really have anything they could do with it. So they just have to sit on it. And banks do not like to just sit on IOUs. Enter the Federal Reserve. Under the PPPLF, banks can take their PPP loans, remember those are the IOUs from small businesses, and use them as collateral to borrow money from the Fed. So now, banks don't have to hold on to the IOUs until they get paid off. Instead, they can swap them for cash for a small interest rate payment. Overall, another reason for banks to participate in getting federal government rescue funds to small businesses. This is the closest the Fed has ever gotten to extending last resort support to small businesses. The Fed's business support efforts extend beyond small and medium-sized businesses. As we mentioned earlier, the Fed has already introduced some support measures for large corporations, like the Commercial Paper Funding Facility. However, there are two groundbreaking last-resort lending programs the Fed added this year. The Fed today going where no Federal Reserve has gone before. uh, Scheduled this morning to have begun the uh, corporate bond buying program. Both programs, whose names are too long to make even the acronyms accessible, help large businesses borrow money at a lower rate than the constricted market would otherwise provide. Under the first program, the Fed buys investment-grade corporate bonds directly from companies. In other words, the Fed lends money directly to the business. Under the second program, the Fed buys these same types of loans, except they do it in the secondary market. Like we talked about earlier, a loan is rarely held on the books of the same institution for the whole length of the loan. Instead, once the loan is made, it is bought and sold many times over. This is done on what's called the secondary market. The secondary market has a very large impact on the primary market. And the primary market is when companies are actually borrowing the money. 
So in order to help support companies who need to borrow money, the Fed bought bonds on the secondary market, sometimes via exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. ETFs are bundles of bonds, and other central banks like the Bank of Japan have bought ETFs before. But it was a first for the Federal Reserve here in the United States. Now, it's only fitting that the final emergency program of this episode and this series sees the Fed become the lender of last resort, not just to businesses of all sizes, but become the lender of last resort to the world. The Fed had expanded the number of countries that it did swap lines with during the global financial crisis. Once the panic began, it expanded them again. Fourteen foreign countries can now swap currencies with the Federal Reserve. Previously, they would conduct these swaps where the Fed gives dollars in exchange for the foreign country's currency once a week. However, on March 19th, the Fed made the swaps available every single day. Now, although these 14 countries constituted a large portion of the global financial system, it left out many emerging market, poorer countries. So in mid-April, the Federal Reserve created a new last resort facility for them, too. Federal Reserve announcing a new program. That is one it never did in the uh, financial crisis, which is going to set up a new repo facility for foreign central banks. Instead of swapping currencies with the Federal Reserve, under this new facility, the countries can borrow dollars from the Fed using U.S. debt, which many countries hold because it is a safe, stable asset for dollars. This then allows the foreign central banks to get the dollars into the hands of the banking and business sectors within their own countries. In times of crisis, and this one is no different, everyone needs U.S. dollars. As the institution responsible for the dollar, the Federal Reserve is providing them on a whole new scale. So the last resort lending has increased dramatically during the coronavirus pandemic. Lots of firsts. For the first time, the Fed extended its last resort powers to small and large businesses, to states and local governments, and to even more foreign countries. I'd argue that part of the reason this has been politically feasible and why there has been very little pushback to the Fed's actions is that the crisis is really a health crisis from a sickness. The economy, and to a lesser extent the financial system, were wounded for sure. But the whole experience has felt incredibly different to the world of 2007, 8, and 9. The Great Recession was caused by turmoil in the financial system itself. When the pandemic ends... Will Congress take a look at the role the Fed played as lender of last resort and change the laws around what they can and cannot do in the future? I'm not sure. Depends on who is president, who controls Congress, and where their priorities are. One thing we know for certain is that the boundaries of the lenders of last resort have been forever changed. This won't be the last time they are needed. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Alexander Badgett. A full transcript with links to all of the sources used and quoted in today's episode can be found at www.centralverse.org. While you're there, check out the interactive graphics describing how modern central banks work today. The theme song for this season is Land of the Retro Ones by Rage. Additional music by Esther Abrami and Patrick Patrikios. I tweet under the name at Caleb Nygaard. Central banks affect the daily lives of all of us. So continue to rate the podcast wherever you're listening, then share the whole series with your coworkers, classmates, family, and friends. So this is it. The end of season three, our seven-part exploration of the lender of last resort. I'd love to hear from you. So please shoot me a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or via the contact us page at centralverse.org. 
I genuinely love to connect. Stay safe and healthy out there. Until next time, thanks for listening.